0: Hey y'all, before we get started today, I just want to let you know that
1: today's episode talks about mental health, and as a warning, we play some songs that have explicit references to suicide. Okay, let's dive in. Welcome to Switched On Pop. I'm musicologist
0: Nate Sloan. And I'm songwriter Charlie Harding.
2: And I'm podcast producer Megan Lubin. Back again.
0: Yeah, you are.
2: Guys, I I want to kick off today's episode with a personal admission that, to be honest, I never imagined that I would make in such a public way.
0: Mm. What's up?
2: I have been struggling. Um, I've been feeling anxious, depressed. I think stuff that a lot of people are having a hard time with right now.
0: Mm, Sorry to hear that.
2: Thanks. And it's a hard thing to talk about, right? Because generally speaking, I'm okay. Like I have work and a partner and a roof over my head. And so when I say struggling, I mean, there's stuff going on in my brain these days that feels very hard to manage. And sometimes I don't manage it so well. I mean, it's obviously been a really, really hard time for a lot of people.
1: Global pandemic, political unrest climate, anxiety. It is rough out there, Megan. And I can only imagine
0: what you're going through and, you know, you're not alone. You know, Megan, as much as a lot of people are going through this, I just want to say, I'm, I'm really sorry you're feeling down. And I just want to check in. Like, do you want to talk podcasts and music some other time?
2: No, actually, this is a really nice escape for me. Truth be told, one of the things that's been the most helpful, the most distracting in this time is music, which means mm. I've been listening to a lot of music lately. Mm. I've been noticing something. At first I thought I was projecting just because of what I'm experiencing right now, but I I think there's really something here. I want to run it by you guys. What's that? I'm hearing pop artists making explicit references to their mental health in their music, mm. not making allusions mm. to it or hiding it behind metaphor as brilliant songwriters so often do, mm-hmm. I'm hearing them actually say, I'm not okay. And in a lot of cases, making explicit references to the things that they do or take to cope. And I think a really good example of this is the artist Girl in Red and her song, Serotonin.
3: I'm running low on serotonin. Chemical imbalance got me twisting things. Stabilized with medicine. There's
2: no death to these feelings. So, Girl in Red is the stage name of Marie Olven. She's a 22 year old producer and singer songwriter from Norway. And in interviews, she's talked about this song, Serotonin, coming out of a really unstable time in her life when she was struggling to separate the stories in her head from her external reality.
0: What struck you about the song when you first heard it?
2: A couple things. I mean, one, it's a really good song. Like, I enjoy listening to it. Truth. But I think the thing that got me talking about it with friends and and talking about it with you, Charlie, is I heard in that song a comfort with the clinical language surrounding mental health. So words like serotonin. Serotonin. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm running low on serotonin. Chemical imbalance got me twisting things.
0: Chemical imbalance in my brain, taking medicine, medication to help. Fix all these feelings.
2: Yeah. And later in the song, she makes references to intrusive thoughts.
3: I get intrusive thoughts, like cutting my hands off, like jumping in front of a bus, like how do I make this stop it-
2: Like, these are not words that I use when I'm talking casually about my own mental health, but they are words that I might use in a meeting with a psychiatrist or a therapist. Right. Mm. And... Well, this is a very good example of what I'm talking about, I think Girl in Red is far from the only one writing like this. Another great example is the new Billie Eilish album and the first song, Mm. Getting Older.
3: Can't shake the feeling that I'm just bad at healing And maybe that's the reason every sentence sounds rehearsed
2: Billie is an artist who is very well known for emotional honesty in her music. Right. But even still, she seems to treat this album like it's a step further than she's taken before. Here's the last line of getting older.
3: I've had some trauma Did things I didn't wanna Was too afraid to tell ya But now I think it's time
1: Wow. Not only is the lyrical content addressing mental health head-on, it's like the way she is singing is communicating this feeling of of being like overwhelmed or something. It's really powerful to listen to. It's like the tone of her voice conveys that as well.
2: I heard that too. And actually, if you listen closely, one thing you'll notice is that the breaths that are normally cut out in a pop song like this are left in. And in some cases it almost sounds like they're copied and pasted and inserted after every phrase. It makes her sound really tired, like exhausted. Yeah, exasperated. Exasperated, exactly. And again, it's not just Billy. It's not just Girl in Red. I know I'm throwing a bunch of examples at you, but really, like, it's so many pop acts that are either topping the charts or have in recent years. Like, I don't think this is a totally brand new phenomenon. I think this is something we've been building towards. Here's Julia Michaels and Selena Gomez with anxiety. It's true.
3: (laughs) it's like,
2: what it's like They don't understand why I can't sleep through the night J. Cole on his track Friends
0: I got thoughts, can't control Got me down, got me low
2: Lil Nas on his new album Montero makes a really similar reference I feel like I've hit low One I've never hit before Kalani on her 2016 release 24-7. Yeah,
0: so you
2: oh, Kendrick Lamar on his seminal album To Pimp a Butterfly
4: I know
2: And of course Juice <laughs> World perhaps the rapper most known for openness around his struggles with depression and addiction probably due to the success of his hit lucid dreams i take prescriptions to make me feel okay i know it's all in my head bottom line modern pop is rife with references to not being okay to overpowering anxiety to depression to medications
1: It's really striking to hear all these tracks back to back. It it almost makes me step back and think about how different this is from the typical perception of pop music as something that's kind of bright and cheery and escapist and meant to make you forget about all your problems. These are pop songs that don't try and pretend that your problems aren't there. In fact, they're going to lean into them and they're going to use this very specific language. It, It makes me think, you know, well... Both, wow, we must be going through a really tough time. A lot of people must be experiencing these difficult emotions. But maybe it's also a good thing that artists are talking about it explicitly at the same time.
2: I can't say conclusively that we're in the middle of some massive taboo shift. But noticing these lyrics did lead me to dig a bit. And the data seems to bear this out. There's a study out of the University of North Carolina on this subject, and it notes that, quote, the lyrics of the most popular songs have become increasingly referential to feelings of depression, suicidal ideation, and metaphors indicating a mental health condition. Mm. The reality is, and like I looked into this in preparation for this episode, is that anecdotally things are really hard for people right now. But again, also like the data bears this out. Reported rates of depression and anxiety are higher in Gen Z than in any prior generation. And there's the good piece of this that's happening as well, which is that more people these days are seeking out mental health resources like therapy than ever before. All of these references made me want to know more about the actual impact of these artists being as open as they are. Like, are there long-term effects of Hearing these songs on the billboard, on the radio, on Spotify, again and again. Huh. Subconscious or conscious. Like, are rap fans who listen to Kendrick Lamar more likely to get themselves to therapy? like That sort of thing.
0: So how do we know if audiences are actually responding to these lyrics and making changes and taking action on their own mental health in their life?
2: Yeah, well, to answer that question, what impact do these lyrics have on listeners? I talked to someone who is studying that very thing. And I learned what it really means, scientifically speaking, when we hear our own struggles reflected back to us in the music that we love.
4: I'm so excited. I cannot express how excited I am. This Of all the like press and stuff I've gotten to do, this is by far the most exciting thing. <laughs> That's sweet.
2: So that is Alex Krzyzewicz. Alex is a PhD candidate studying health communication at UNC Chapel Hill. He's also the author of that study I mentioned up above. Alex studies the effect of popular song lyrics on people's attitudes and behavior.
1: So basically, he's the perfect person to try and answer this question of how people react to mentions of mental health and pop song lyrics.
2: Yep. And before Alex studied music, he made music. Alex was a producer for a while in Los Angeles. He worked with artists like CeeLo Green and Panic at the Disco. And one of his songs for Panic at the Disco actually went platinum.
1: Whoa. Damn, Alex K.
2: That's King of the Clouds, which was released in 2018
0: I guess I'm curious you know Nate and I fill really different roles in this show he gets to be Mr. Academic I get to be like producery songwritery songwriter dude like how does someone go from one role to the other how do you go from writing songs to academia
2: yeah um well it's complicated one thing to know is that Alex himself has long struggled with his mental health he was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder when he was just seven years old
4: What happened was uh, music was my escape from my anxiety. And I would go to the basement at my parents' house where they had this old big speaker system. And I would listen to music for two to three hours a day just by myself. I would dance around. I would pretend I was a sports star. I'd pretend I was a rock star. I would like live out all these scenarios in my life. And it was a way to really escape my day-to-day anxiety and just live in my imagination
2: Alex, of course, grew up and turned those basement fantasy sessions into a whole career. But I think when you get a job doing what you love, it can go one of two ways. And Mm. I think for Alex, it stopped being an escape. And it started to feel like a series of obligations and Mm. deadlines. And the way he tells it, after a while, he just hit a breaking point in L.A. It wasn't even that dramatic. He'd just been working hard for a long time. And a big hyped-up single he was working on for a major artist got canned after months of production and painstaking fine tuning. It's the worst. The worst. I was just having a
4: really hard time. I remember being on the phone with my parents and them telling me that they were like concerned about me and concerned about my mental health. Like I had been backsliding, you know, after that happened for the next couple months, I think I was just spinning and I remember being out running one morning like a month later and just kind of hearing this voice in my head being like hey Alex it's okay to let go and it's like it's okay and that that day I was like all right I'm I'm gonna get out of here as soon as I can so give it another month and a half and that was it.
0: I can sense that it's sort of bittersweet to have ascended to a point in a career which is basically an impossible one to have and then to have to leave it all behind but I think it's really brave to see this thing is is actually the most counterproductive to my mental well-being. I've got to get out of here. I think it's a really strong thing to have to do.
2: Totally. You put that really nicely, Charlie. And I mean, it's so relevant right now, too. I mean, I, I can think of a lot of people in my life who have careers that on paper are their perfect fit, but are totally burning out or really struggling. Yeah. And I was so appreciative of Alex for Sharing all of that. Like, I love the word you used, brave. I think it's super brave. So, with his production career behind him, Alex decides to pick up where he left off in school and go for a PhD in health communication, something that he'd studied before. And I should note here, because it's important context for how Alex ended up analyzing pop lyrics as a career. In the years leading up to him going back to school, there had been a whole bunch of people studying the impact of celebrity health disclosures on the public.
1: First of all, let me say good good after late afternoon.
2: There's a hallmark study that came out in 1995, evaluating the impact specifically of Magic Johnson's HIV diagnosis on people's attitudes towards those with HIV. Are
0: you scared right
1: now? No. It's another challenge, another chapter in my life that it's like your back is against the wall. And I think that you just have to come out swinging. And I'm swinging.
2: And the study authors, these two researchers, William J. Brown and Michael D. Basil, found that the results of the study hinged on participants' personal investment in Johnson. So basically, Mm -hmm. their willingness to go get tested for HIV, their attitudes towards those with HIV, correlated to how much they liked Magic Johnson. So this is where Alex sees an opening. There are tons of people studying the impact of celebrity health disclosures in television and in sports, but almost no one looking into song lyrics as a vector. So he pivots and pretty immediately starts scoping out the study. Alex wants to know how listening to music with mental health-related content might lead to better attitudes around mental health and what he calls behavioral intentions, basically your intent to do something, so your intent to seek treatment, for example. He believes that listening to lyrics will change attitudes, but he wants to study how and to what extent.
1: Can I just ask, why pop lyrics? Why not just do a direct comparison with Magic Johnson and look at how musicians' public comments impact fans?
2: Okay, so Alex also has reason to believe that lyrics are a particularly powerful medium when it comes to processing our emotions. There's a famous socio-musicologist named Simon Frith who wrote that.
4: To sing words is to elevate them in some way, to make them special, to give them a new form of intensity. But what it it really says is music is different because it helps us find meaning.
2: And because of this, because we connect with song lyrics empathetically, like we feel Mm. the artist experience as if it were our own, Mm. Alex thinks that song lyrics can change attitudes regardless of whether someone has a connection to the artist, which would be kind of a big deal in his field. So... Alex gathers up a participant pool of about 250 undergraduate students and sets them up with a survey. And the survey starts with sound, short clips of contemporary pop songs, which happen to center around themes of mental health.
4: So the songs I picked were In My Blood by Shawn Mendes.
2: Help me, it's like the walls cave
3: in.
4: Which is about anxiety difficulties. Breathe In by Ariana Grande.
3: Just keep breathing, and breathing and, breathing and breathing.
4: Which is about a technique for dealing with anxiety. one 800 273 8255 the very popular logic song, which is about depression and suicidal thinking.
0: I don't wanna be alive.
4: Um, Lovely by Billie Eilish and Khalid, which is very on the nose about depression and anxiety.
0: Me glass my mind stone. Me me pieces. Pieces. And
4: then Lil Uzi Vert's XO Tour Life. Which is about, um, depression and suicidal thinking.
2: After the clips play, participants get hit with a series of statement questions.
4: Like, do you identify with the values of the song? Do you feel like this song describes you? Do you feel like this song describes your life? I call it perceived personal connection. Do you really feel connected to this song?
2: Then Alex runs them through a similar set of questions about your connection to the artist. You know, if you saw a social media post from this person, are you likely to read it? Do you feel like you know this artist well?
4: Then I ask questions about like mental health empathy. Do you feel for people who struggle with their mental health? Or do you feel like you understand what they're going through? And then questions about stigma. Do you feel like most people who struggle with their mental health are to blame for their problems?
2: What Alex is looking for here is associations, like strong correlations between people who feel one way about the music and one way about those struggling with mental health. For example, do the people who identify the most with these songs about mental health also have the highest levels of empathy towards people struggling with their mental health? And the short answer is yes. What Alex found was that people who feel really connected to the content of a song tend to feel more empathy for those who are struggling. And that empathy is linked to a whole host of other stuff like reduced mental health stigma, greater support Hmm. for public mental health resources, and a greater willingness to offer support to others struggling with their mental health. And here's a key finding. People showed more empathy whether they cared about the artist or not. They didn't need to connect with the person singing the song to connect with the song itself.
0: People need to stop trashing on pop music.
2: Seriously.
1: God. Hearing these insights from Alex's study makes me think about how Whenever there's a pop song with controversial lyrics, there's always this huge backlash because I guess presumably people think it's like bad for people to listen to uh, music with controversial subjects. This suggests the opposite. In fact, this is a form of healing to be exposed to these themes in a song.
2: Yeah, and I talked to Alex about that exact thing and he owns that the study wasn't looking for the negative implications. It was very much Mm. trying to see if it could suss out these positive associations, and it was able to. But it does feel like we're always having that conversation, Nate, and not this conversation, which is why this study is so exciting. It's the beginning of scientific proof or sort of, like, indicators. Alex referred to it as, like, someone waving up a little flag and saying, like, there's something here that you should look at. Hmm. There's one more finding in Alex's study that piqued my interest. Initially, Alex thought that people who connect with songs about mental health might be more willing to seek treatment for themselves mm. but
4: there was no relationship so just having more empathy didn't make someone be like yeah well you know if i was depressed i'd seek support for my help
2: but what those participants did say is that they use music to cope with their stress
4: so it almost seems like a lot of these young people are using music to self-medicate you know when they're feeling anxious or depressed they're turning to music which
2: relatable
1: What a thought-provoking concept, music as a form of medication.
2: And Alex is by no means suggesting that that's what people should do, Hmm. like, in place of treatment or seeing a doctor. What his survey is showing is that that's what people are reporting doing. This is, like, what's happening right now. Wow. Hmm. Okay. So I think Alex's study is a really useful tool for understanding how music can influence listeners increasing our empathy towards people struggling with their mental health, and reducing stigma. But what if we took that music-as-medicine concept a little further? What if musicians behaved more like actual healers, doling out the exact right sounds for low moments, songs formulated to help people feel better? There is someone out there, a big-name artist, who's thought a great deal about making music that specifically developed to heal us someone intent on magnifying music's therapeutic powers. That's after the break.
0: Relief with Astapro, go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's A S T E P R O allergy.com. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.
2: Before the break, I mentioned an artist who thinks a lot about the healing power of music. Hey, nice to meet you. I'm Esperanza Spalding. <laughs> I think once we figured out that we were going to be making this episode, we knew we had to talk to Esperanza Spaulding. She recently put out an album called Songwriter's Apothecary Lab. The project emerged out of a series of actual labs, multi-day affairs where Spaulding would gather fellow musicians, researchers, therapists, and other non-musicians. Every song on the album is conceived of as an antidote to a specific emotional pain. In fact, she calls the tracks Form We Laws." Formulas that we sing.
1: Formula.
2: Like here's formula three, a formula for quote, releasing the heaviness of a seemingly endless blue state.
3: Why we are stuck inside. I don't like to use the word medicine in our context because it is it, too heavy and it, it promises too much. It alludes to too, too much. They're formulas, little musical formulas to, uh, to prompt or initiate or invite a particular effect in the body or in the experience and the perception of the listeners. The
1: First of all, Let's talk about that song for a second because that was celestial. Like those stacked vocals, those melodies, that sparse accompaniment. Like, but I also want to know more. Like, I get why she doesn't want to call them medicine, but it also seems like that's how she's thinking about this on some level. Esperanza used the word apothecary in the title.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe medicine just had some too harsh connotations or something. But yeah, each track is a thoroughly researched, methodically composed piece of music with a single healing objective. And the whole project rests on this one question the question you might ask yourself when you're standing in front of an aisle of cold medicine What do I need to feel better than I do right now? For instance, Corey King, wonderful
3: songwriter, producer, trombonist, Corey arrived on the first day of the lab and we. Discuss like what do we need, what do you need the song for, Corey? Corey said, what do you need a song for? So that was our prompt. But it's like away, no, not for the-
2: one thing I really appreciated in our interview was how Spalding went out of her way to say that this is not a new way of music making. In fact, it's as old as arranged music itself. This way
3: of Musicking in response to the experience of our fellow community members or of ourselves in response to a perceived need or a recognized need or a felt need. That's so old. None of this is new or innovative. <laughs> We're playing with the origin of music, I think. I think the origin of music being a response to others in your community, in your surroundings. And the response is intuitive when you hum for a baby or when you're sitting with somebody who's grieving and you you feel compelled to hum or when you're excited and you go, woo, that's music.
1: What I find so inspiring about that approach to making music is that it takes the, the themes that we've been talking about so far, the way that music can have this kind of therapeutic role in our lives, and it's applying them to the actual creation and composition of that music. So not just like the after effect of listening, but actually like how can we bring in these these ideas of creating a healing and holistic environment when we're actually making music? Like that is, I don't know, that just blows me away.
2: Totally. And Spalding admits that making music this way didn't feel like an option for her for a long time because the industry is just not set up to support it. Most artists make a series of compromises when they sign with a label, where they're handing over some amount of power over what music of theirs ultimately gets released and what it sounds like. Spalding remembers one very common example of this from early on in her career.
3: I can remember with the album Esperanza, my label rep at the time having a grid of the songs, the types of, and like the. Speeds and tempos and vibes of the songs that he understood in conversation with the label should be on the album. There were other songs that I wanted to put on the album, and he was like, No, they don't fit in the grid. Th- that's such a minor example, but I really was deferring power to him and thinking that he knew better. Meanwhile, if you think about it, I'm like, I don't know that he's a demographic that I was even trying to speak to. I'm deferring my sense of, of knowing what a balanced representation of my work is to this person to this other person whose metric of value is really different from mine.
2: Spalding knows that this is most pop artists' experience. Her hope for Songwrights Apothecary Lab is that it encourages artists to be really clear-eyed about the psychological toll of compromising their talent for a label or a brand. Not to avoid it altogether, because that's not really possible, but just to check in with themselves and ask, What do I think this compromise is going to do for me? And to approach conversations like the one she had with her label rep back in the day. Imagining a world in which you don't need the rep or their money to feel confident in what you have to offer.
3: Imagine you already had all the money you need, you already had health insurance, you already had rent. And imagine the person talking to you knew that you were already good. And then imagine how the conversation would be different. Then you can track the difference between how that conversation will go and how it's actually going then you can make some choices. Like, actually, this part is not okay.
1: I mean, this strikes me as universally applicable.
2: Yeah, right after this conversation with Esperanza Spaulding, I messaged a friend of mine who's in the middle of a tough work negotiation. And I was like, imagine if you didn't need this person to tell you that you're good in order to feel good. Like It's a powerful energy and a real survival mechanism, I think, when you're making art in less than ideal creative environments, like the popular music industry.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the most tragic things in the world of popular music is the way that the career destroys artists' lives in a whole myriad of tragic ways. And I really appreciate the project of trying to re-embrace the gifts that we have, such that the artist can be whole and healed, the process can be healing, it can be healing back to the listener, and that can be a cycle in community and in conversation with each other. It feels really primordial.
2: Yes. And actually, that reminds me of the other hope Spalding said she has for this project. She wants to remind listeners that we all have access to the healing power of music that she explored on Songwright's Apothecary Lab
3: you know, we all do have a capacity to bring music into our body, into the room. You can, you can hit play. You can put a record on. If you don't have the faculty of hearing through your ear, you can rhythm. You can experience vibration through, like right now I'm hitting this chair, I'm feeling it through my rib cage. Like we all have access to this incredibly nourishing a resource called quote unquote music. And I, I, I hope that as we think about you know what formula would i put on if i was feeling down and i needed to da, 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 fill in the blank it might activate this this reminder that like oh actually i have access to so many formulas It maybe reignite our relationship with sound as a healing agent day to day in our own lives and to reignite the relationship with our own intuitive sense of what sound we need at any given time. Because you know, we do be knowing. Do we give ourselves permission to know is the question.
0: Deep. You know, I'm really glad that Esperanza Spaulding is serving as a model of a way of music making that can be really healthy. I'm also excited to have heard from Alex, someone who saw that, like, this thing isn't working for me. It's okay to step out. You know, in a moment when so many artists are bearing their heart and their deepest psychological challenges on microphone, what a beautiful and important thing. It's even more powerful for me to see people who are showing the way through. And I'm totally moved by it. Same.
1: Ditto. Megan, I'm curious, has this investigation changed anything for you personally? Like, Do you feel like you got the information you were hoping for?
2: Yeah, I do. I think above all else, the search has me listening to music really differently. I'm more aware of how what I'm listening to is normalizing certain themes for me, even when I'm not conscious of it. And I think a lot more about the artist's experience of making the music now. It's all made me a much more empathetic listener. And it makes the music I've listened to since researching all of this a more immersive kind of whole body and mind experience.
1: Dare we say healing?
2: Yeah, and healing too.
1: switch on Pop is produced by Charlie Harding, Megan Lubin, and me, Nate Sloan. We're edited by Jolie Myers, engineered by Brandon McFarlane. Illustrations by Iris Gottlieb and social media by Abby Barr. Our executive producers are Nishat Kurwa and Hannah Rosen. We're a member of the Vox Media Podcast Network and a production of Vulture.
2: Special thanks to Alex Kresovich and Esperanza Spalding for sharing their knowledge and their passion with us. An additional thanks to two people we weren't able to include in this episode, but who taught us so much about how music is used for therapy in clinical settings. Gabby Banzon and Allison Rogers. They host their own podcast for music therapists about pop music and therapy. It's called Clinical Populations. Go check it out.
1: You can find more episodes of Switched on Pop anywhere you get podcasts and always on our website at switchedonpop.com. We'll be back next week. And
0: until then... Thanks for listening. One final shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. You know what's a terrible question? What's your favorite part of having nasal allergies? I don't know. Absolutely nothing. Luckily, you might be able to find some relief with AstaPro. AstaPro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with AstaPro. Go to AstaProAllergy.com for a discount. That's AstaProAllergy.com. Use this directive for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.